following audio is from a sermon series called Identity Formation. As we study through the book of Ephesians, our aim is to get an understanding about what is most true about us when our identity is found in Jesus Christ. As we understand our gospel identity, we learn that our being informs our doing. Ephesians is all about identity formation. For more information on Sacred City Church, visit scmoline.com. Tom, good morning, church. Oh my gosh, I'm, my name is Corey. I'm uh, one of the pastors of Heights Church in Collinsville, Illinois, and uh, excited to get to be here with you. I'm, I'm great friends with uh, Sam and with Justin Dean and many of the, the leaders in the church, and so it's an honor to get to come and uh, preach and teach out of the book of Ephesians, and so I'm, I'm excited for that. Uh, before we get into that, though, let me uh, also announce that today is Church Planting Sunday, and so that's huge. That's a big deal. It's, it's worth more than two shouts out of the congregation, that's for sure. Uh, you would not be here if it were not for church planting, okay? And so uh, it's just an incredible—I wouldn't be here either. And so what's so, so beautiful is that we didn't, we didn't plan, like, for me to be here on church planting Sunday. Also, as we're going to get into the sermon, we didn't plan for the liturgy and the songs to pair perfectly with the sermon content for today. Um, but God, in the, by the Holy Spirit, uh, has led us to this. And so I think it's great to be here for church planting Sunday because of this. Sacred City, as a church plant, supported me as a church planter. And then once we were established and kind of got rolling, we supported Sam, Pastor Sam, as a church planter. And then I just happened to be on the schedule for our church planting resident, Paul, to come with me today. And so all of that kind of beautifully woven uh, together. And so church planting is more than just, ooh, we planted a church. Uh, it is the primary way that, the, that God the Father presses the gospel out into the world. It's an exciting fun reality for us to be a part of. And so, like, we get to partner on so much, whether it be Fishers of Men and sponsoring kids or building wells together, or we just built fifth, fifth grade there with Fishers of Men. Like, there's all these incredibly beautiful things that happen whenever we uh, have a mindset that is about gospel, community, and mission, and pushing that out through missional and community. So I'm excited uh, for that. I've done my job for Acts 29. I've celebrated church planting. And so in this, uh, I'm honored to preach Ephesians. I'm so pumped. As I was sitting there listening uh, to the liturgy and the, the songs and the prayers, they had no idea I was coming and preaching on the doctrine of adoption, and yet everything we just sang about uh, has to do with what's called the doctrine of uh, adoption. I love the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is my absolute most favorite book. I don't know if that's a sinful thing, if you're allowed to have one, if you're allowed to pick one out of 66. Ephesians is mine, man. When I'm sad, I go to Ephesians. When I'm lonely, I go to Ephesians. If I'm counseling a couple or even a single and, and they can't seem to get out of the funk they're in, I encourage them to do an inductive Bible study on the book of Ephesians. I love this book. It ministers to my soul in, in ways that other books just have not in my walk with Jesus. It's an incredible book to go to to learn our identity and to learn our position before the Father. And the whole book begins with like, here's your identity in Christ. And then it says, then finally in chapter 3, it's like, now here's how you're called to respond. Here's your identity. Look at everything that Jesus has done for you. Now go respond to this as if it were actually true. So I love this book. Um, it was a few years ago when my mother passed away. Uh, about four years ago, my mom passed away. And uh, I was sitting there at the kitchen table, and I was putting in information to Ancestry.com. Uh, whenever I was seven years old, my father had passed away. Whenever we were planting Heights Church, both my grandmother and my grandfather, who helped raise me, had passed away. And then my mom had eventually, would eventually then pass away four years ago. And I'm sitting at the table, 
and I'm plugging in death certificate information into Ancestry.com. And as I'm sitting there, my wife, her name's Andrea, she looks at me and, and she says, are you doing okay? And so I guess I was just wearing it on my body, just sitting in this death. And I looked at her in the kitchen, and I remember clear as day, and I said, I no longer have any parents. I'm sitting there looking at all this death certificate information. I said, hey, I just, I don't have any parents. And I felt orphaned. Man, I felt alone. I felt abandoned. I mean, a part of my story wrapped up in that. And, and as I sat there with her, man, she just loved on me as she should. And it was in that moment that I took a year and I studied the book of Ephesians. I did an inductive study on the doctrine of adoption, uh, specifically out of the book of Ephesians. And so today, I have no doubt in my mind, hearing God's word being proclaimed, hearing the liturgy, hearing the song, that he has put me here today to be an encouragement to you. There's a lot of you in this room right now that feel the same that I feel, whether you've experienced that sort of loss or not. You feel abandoned. You feel isolated. You can feel hopeless. You can feel alone, whether you've lost your parents, whether you're a Christian or not, right? There's a desire to feel included, to feel pursued, to feel loved, to feel valued, to feel redeemed, to feel worthy. Let me tell you what, the doctrine of adoption in concert with God's word and his spirit and the gospel, man, is going to be such an encouragement for you today. It's going to be incredible. You guys ready for this? So the big idea I have for you, for me and the other two that are pumped to be here today, the big idea that I have for you is this. If you guys could throw it up on the slide for me, I believe it's here. Jesus brothers you so that the Father can father you. That's what I want you to see. So if you space cadet on me and you fall asleep or whatever happens in this next 40 minutes, this is the one thing I want you to hear. The Jesus brothers you so that the Father can father you. What I mean by that is that your adoption into the family of God is only possible because Jesus has earned your position into that family. That's the only way that it's possible for you. So there's three simple points that I have for you, and this is them. If you're a note taker, if you're listening or watching online, three points for you. Adoption is a blessing, adoption is the goal, and adoption is costly, okay? We're going to begin with adoption is a blessing. If you're ready, say you're ready. Okay, I have a church that talks to me. Y'all got some soul. I heard Tim up here on the organ, okay? I need you to talk to me or we're going to sit through lunch, okay? We'll do this. It'll be just me and Paul, and it's going to be a good time, okay? Adoption is a blessing, starting in verse 3. Listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has what? Blessed us in Christ with every spiritual what? Blessing in the heavenly places. So Paul kicks this thing off, and he says, bless the Father. That's the first thing he says. Bless the Father who is the God of our Lord, God's Son, Jesus Christ. Bless the Father. Why? Because he's blessed us in every spiritual blessing. And, and so Paul kicks this thing off, and he, says, he puts right placement on God the Father and his identity. He is a father. He is the father of all the nations. He is the father over all of creation. He's the father of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is Father. That's all God knows. That's all God can display. That's all God, that's all God knows how to reveal to the rest of creation. He is Father, and he is good. And Paul says, bless him for that. Bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is so important for us. I had 
six different stepdads growing up before I hit fourth grade. Six different dads. Six different fathers, if I may. My biological dad died of a cocaine overdose whenever I was seven years old in a hotel room with a woman who was not my mom. There's a bit of my history. Uh, it's safe to say, then, that whenever I hear something like God as Father, it immediately causes me to kind of cringe a little bit on the inside, right? Because the human display of a father that I had, I can take my experience with the dads that I had growing up, and I can easily project that onto God as Father. Anyone else? It's safe to say that in this room that our experience, no matter if your experience was good, no matter if it was poor, no matter if it was incredible, if you had a good father, if you had a good grandfather, you can project that onto God as father. Likewise, simultaneously, if you had a horrific upbringing similar to mine, you can also look at God the Father and say, well, who do you think you are? Why would I love you? Why would I serve you? Why would I respond to you? Here's what I, I want you to hear me say. God is not your biological father. He, he's not your biological grandfather. He's not your good experience or your poor experience. He is the father of the nations. And Paul comes out of this thing and he says, bless him for that. He's not fathered you like your biological father. Not in any way. He's so above and beyond any biological father that could ever sit in this room or in our presence. He's the father of the nations. All of creation bowing to him as father. Paul says, bless him for this. Why? Because he's blessed us in what? Every single spiritual blessing you could ever imagine. That's what he's given us. What does that mean, pastor? Well, good thing I came, huh? So, verse 4. Paul's going to tell you he's a better pastor than I am. He says, verse 4, Even as he, what, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Set in this for just a minute. Like chose us in him, Christ, before, before the foundation of the world, that we should be what? What's the blessing? That we should be holy and blameless. What is the spiritual blessing through Jesus Christ? My gosh, it's like the most unimaginable blessing you could ever receive, church. That we would be holy and blameless. But what does that mean to be holy and blameless? Blame. This is the most incredible news I could ever get to preach. Last time I was here, I got to preach on Revelation 14, and the blood of the unrighteous was going to be as high as a horse's brittle and 200 miles long. Today I get to preach on this. This is like a, this is a softball pitch, you know what I'm saying? This is easy. What is he saying? What, what could he be saying in this? What is he saying? It means this. It means that sometime along the line of eternity, God as a father looked out across time and space and saw you. Like, like saw you, saw me for everything that we are, for everything that we're not, he saw us. In our imperfections, on the days that we thought we were per perfect, he looked out and he saw us standing there and he saw, listen, through your facade. He saw through your social media perfect image that you tried to persuade people to believe. He saw through all of your filters, saw through all of your white lies, saw through all of your phoebish foolish attempts to be self-righteous as we talked about earlier in the confession he saw you saw you trying to do all saw you trying to be the perfect dad the perfect mom and failing miserably and beating yourself up about it day in and day out looked out and just saw you for everything that you 
are, everything that you will ever be, everything that you were prior to entering into relationship with Jesus, saw your flaws, saw your judgmental heart, saw your terrible thoughts, saw you at your absolute worst. And as he's looking at us, think about that. As he's looking at us, he looks at his son and he says, come here, stand between me and them so that I can look upon them as I look upon you in perfection, holy and blameless. He sees everything that we are, and he says, come on over here, son. Just stand between us. Stand between your dad and your brothers and sisters so that I can look at them the way that I get to fix my eyes upon you so that I may look at them, listen, blameless. Half of y'all probably fought on the way to church today, yelling at your kids, just swatting kids, right? Saw you blameless in Christ if you're a Christian. Do you hear me? Saw us, and he just said, you're mine. Every single thing that you are, you are mine. That's a different picture than your daddy. That's a beautiful picture of a father. And so before, just to be clear, before we could ever do anything worth bragging about, God looked out across across creation and chose us. That we would be holy and that we would be blameless because of Christ. Like in the midst, listen to me, in the midst of our sin. Listen, in the midst of our sin. Like as we're sitting there in depravity, actively sinning against God, committing adultery against the Father, he looks at us and he says, yeah, I know, but all I can see is the Son. Perfect in your place, blameless in your place. I mean, think about it. We're doing story-formed way as a church. Many of you, I believe, have done story-formed way at some point in Sacred City life. Church, we're going through story-formed way. What happened to the angels when they rebelled against God? Done, right? Tim said, done. Angels, done. No mercy. Sent down for destruction. What happens whenever Adam and Eve rebel? God moves towards them. Like they're actively sinning against their father, and the father just moves towards them, pursues them. That's the exact same way that he pursues us because of Christ. In the midst of our rebellion, he looks at us and he sees his son. That's a hard pill to swallow, church. I mean, just this week, I have a our youngest son, I'll, 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 I'll give you more info on him here in a minute. Our youngest son, his name's Kaysen. Um, he's adopted. We just adopted him in December. I'm giving some stuff away I'm going to give in a minute. Uh, Tuesday, as I'm tweaking the sermon and writing the sermon, we had to take him to the ER for breathing treatments. He had uh, asthma that kind of flared up. And so needless to say, he, he is in the ER. He also uh, has a defiancy disorder, literally. He's not just like, terrible twos. He's like, terrible twos. You know, like, it's like really bad stuff that we get ourselves into here with him. And he's, you know, overall a good kid. Part of that's his history. I'll talk to you about that in a minute. He has to go to the ER. He's all hopped up on steroids. And, and whenever kids, if you know anything about kids having to take steroids, when they come off of steroids, it ain't pretty. It's like a hangover. It's really bad, nasty stuff that they get into. And so he had literally done, as I'm writing this, he had literally just filled the whole basement toilet full of all the toys he could find and tried to flush them. And then I took him out of the basement, put him in bed, you know, change him, put him in bed, super nice. We got the, you know, the sound machines going, the blackout curtains are on. It's like an oasis in his bedroom, okay? It's like a spa treatment. Five seconds later, he's jumping up and down in the crib, stripping himself naked, stripping his clothes naked, and has somehow pulled the shades open so it's no longer light canceling, okay? It's like a foreshadowing of hell in that room, okay, when I was in there. 
It, I didn't, listen, I didn't even want to look at him by Friday. That was Tuesday. That's just Tuesday. That was Tuesday. <laughs> All right. That was Tuesday. I didn't even want to look at him. Um, can I be honest? I didn't even want to look at him come Friday. And yet as I'm reading Ephesians, man, and the gospel reminds me that in, like, that the father looks at Corey through the lens of the perfect son whenever I'm acting like a two-year-old. Like, in the midst of my sin, he says, you're holy and blameless. Does not turn his gaze away, as I wanted to do. But man, with his eyes transfixed on his son, he sees us. That is the beauty of the gospel, and he sees us, and he says, blameless. Now, I'm not saying Christian perfectionism. Don't hear me say something I'm not. I'm not saying you can be perfect. You're all just as jacked up as Heights Church is, I'm sure, right? But what I am saying is that there's long before the earth was formed that the Father looked out across time and space, saw you right where you were. He said you're mine, not because of anything you could ever do, but simply because of the perfect word of the Son, work of the Son. He is coming in our place. Adoption is a blessing for us. Not only that, but it's always been the goal, Paul says. This has always been the goal. Verse 5, you get to fill that up for me. Verse 5, he says this, adoption is the goal. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Okay, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through the work of Christ, according to the purpose of my will or his will. His will. Okay, just to be clear. His will. Paul states it really clear. Our adoption has always been the goal. This is what has been predestined. This was what the plan always was. And what he means by this is that it wasn't enough for God to save you. Like, that, that wasn't enough for him. He could have just saved us. But he, but he doesn't stop there. Instead, he continues to move forward, and he stops at nothing until we're actually a part of his family as sons. That's incredible. Every single thing that has ever happened has happened so that we in this room as Christians, and so those of you that are not yet Christians, can become sons. Every millisecond of time and space that's ever been touched by the Father has been touched to make it a moment, make a moment so that you could come to faith as a son and be brought into the family. That's what predestination means. Some people hear that. I know this is like a good Reformed church, you know, so we'll not talking about you, obviously, but other people will hear this and they think, oh, predestination. And they kind of freak out about that word. What am I, a puppet? What is this? What is it? Predestination. Don't ever freak out about it. It just means predestination. It's exactly what it means. That's why it's in the Bible, right? So predestination means that God has orchestrated every single thing to happen for his glory and for his mission. There's no Christian at the end of the day that would ever deny that statement. And this reality then is that you would never, I would never have chosen God on our own. Back to the garden, Adam and Eve had everything, and who do they choose? They choose themselves. Are we so different? We're not any different, right? We have this beautiful opportunity to walk with the Father in the cool of the day by the power of the Holy Spirit, and yet we continue to choose cultural idols. We are absolutely no different than he is. And so God says, though, I will send a son in that garden. Everything from that moment forward is redemptive history. Everything from the moment God says, I will send a son, it will bruise, he will crush his head, but it will bruise his heel. That first gospel presentation, everything has been orchestrated then to send the son so that we might be brought into the family as sons. That's predestination, in short. I'm here to preach on the doctrine of adoption, though. I got it. I'm with you. I'm getting back on track. So Paul calls the church then, the church as a whole, sons. 
for us, not that big of a deal. In our culture, you can identify whatever you want to. It's not a big deal at all. You can call yourself a son or a daughter or a cow. It doesn't matter anymore. For Paul, Paul says you are sons, talking specifically to the church. He's saying, like, you are sons. Both men and women alike are sons, considered the firstborn son. In Paul's culture, that would have blown their minds. Like, that, he wasn't just being cool and progressive, right? He wasn't just driving around a Prius vowing to be vegetarian. He is saying here, like, you are sons. He wasn't just trying to be 2021 about it. He's making this bold statement as to what it means to be in the family of God. He's not going for dramatic effect. He's saying, no, you are going to receive the same inheritance as a firstborn son. And so in his culture, the firstborn son received everything. The father raised up a whole estate, sacrificed wildly for the family, and then would then distribute everything to the firstborn son. And then the, it was the firstborn son's responsibility to continue maintaining the estate. And so for him to sit in a room full of men and women alike, it was an audacious claim. I mean, think about women in their culture didn't even have a voice. They didn't have a voice at all. Uh, women were looked to as work. That was it. You, you work. You provide children, which is a 401k. That's your duty. That's the end. That's how they viewed women. There's like women, and you might know this, women weren't even allowed to go into court because it would ruin the testimony of the men. And so yet Paul is standing here in the midst of this culture, completely countercultural, and he's saying both men and women alike will receive the firstborn inheritance as the son. That's crazy for them. That would have been insane to hear him say that. So he makes this wildly, Paul makes this wildly inappropriate statement for his culture and tells them that God has chosen you from the beginning of the beginning, all of us, not just you, all of us as sons. That's crazy to think about. That was always the goal. God predestined you to be a son. God chose to bring you into the family and give you the full inheritance. That's every single thing that the, that the son could ever have, that Jesus could ever have. He's lavished upon you. Every spiritual blessing, men and women equally. I love this because we can think, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to receive these spiritual blessings? As if blameless and holy was not enough. We could have just stopped there and took communion, you know? So Colossians 1, I believe I sent to the team. I just want to remind you of what, it, of what the inheritance of Jesus is. Okay? Colossians 1, 15, hopefully it's on the screen. It says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of what? All creation, not just some of it, all of it. This is who the Son is that pays our way. Verse 16, for by him, that's Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. What does it say? All things were created through him and for him. And he is before what? Some things or all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head, the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, every single thing, he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God, every bit of God the Father, pleased to dwell in Jesus and through Jesus to reconcile to himself, what, some things or all things. Everything will be reconciled under his headship, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is the firstborn son of creation who will receive all things. And we as Christians, church, like we should just feel so small right now. This is the same inheritance that is given over to us. 
And yet we will grumble about where we're going to go eat lunch in 20 minutes. All things given to us. Paul has revealed this has always been the plan that we would receive all things. Adam and Eve received all things and they could not control it. They couldn't handle it. So instead of responding as sons, Adam and Eve respond as slaves. They don't go to God as a father. They treat him like a foreman. They feel like they need to work to earn more than what has already been given to them. And yet Paul says, no, this is what predestination is. You've been predestined as sons to the purpose of his will. And, and what's interesting is that so many Christians will complain about that. But what does it mean to be under the will of God? As if there's a better place to be? Right, like you're either going to follow your will or you're going to follow the will of God. And only one of those are going to end well for you. So what happens then, instead of, when we think like that, instead of treating God as a father, we begin to treat him as Adam and Eve did, which is a foreman. And instead of having a sonship mindset, we have a slavery mindset. So let's camp out here. here here's what happens when we don't believe our sonship. We, we try to earn our salvation regularly and routinely, routinely as professing Christians. Uh, we try to uh, receive some work that's already been done in us through the work of Christ. We try to maintain, we try to we stop resting. There's no Sabbath anymore in our rhythms, right? If you want to know if you uh, approach the throne of God as a son or a slave, let me just ask you, do you Sabbath? Because if you don't Sabbath, that answers the question as to how do you view God as a father? Slave mindset. There's an incredible book by Tim Keller called Prodigal God that most of you have read because your pastors all quote him every week. And so uh, he says something to the effect of sons, the difference between sons and slaves. He says, sons are given their place at the estate. The sons are free to work in the light of the day. Sons freely come before their father. Sons make requests of their father. Sons are fearless. But he says it's all the opposite for the slave that works the estate. He says the slave, while they do the same work as the son, keep in mind, the slave, while they do the same work as the son, slaves hide in the shadows. Slaves dare to come before the head of the estate. Slaves would never dream of making requests of the head of the estate. Slaves are, slaves are just trying to maintain their place under the foreman. And he goes on to say again and again, there's this freedom that comes whenever we have a sonship mentality because we don't work to earn our keep. We work because everything is already ours. But whenever we approach the throne as a slave, we're, we're working in the shadows. We're scared to come before our father. We're scared of making requests. We just want to earn our place at the estate because we're fearful of losing our place at the estate. There's a sonship, slavery kind of dichotomy that he lays out. And Romans 8.14, let me remind you, says this. Romans 8.14 and 15 said, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are what? Sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we what? By whom we cry, Abba, Father. We're not slaves, church. We are sons, Paul says. Predestined from the beginning of the beginning. God is not your foreman that you need to show up and impress. He's a father that's looked out across time and space and just loves you right where you are. Loves you too much to leave you as you are, but loves you just right where you are. Let me invite you to ask, just ask the question, do you tend to identify more with a son or with a slave in your approach to God as a father? You tend to identify more as a son or as a slave. Let me also be clear then in saying this. Just because you have a creator does not mean you have a father. Just because you have a creator doesn't mean you have a 
Father, it's only through professing faith in the finished work of Jesus that that invites you into sonship. All right? Recall the big idea. Jesus brothers you so that the Father can father you. Let me keep pushing this a little bit more. Can you, some of you might recall the, uh, the parable, the, the prodigal son. Anybody read the prodigal son lately? Hopefully you have. There's a, the story is about two sons, right? About an older son and a younger son. Uh, the younger son never left college, basically. He goes, he asks his dad if he can have all of his inheritance up front. That's the same as wishing his dad is dead. A uh, younger son then takes uh, a little bit of a trip. Uh, he finds himself dealing with prostitutes, alcohol, uh, tons of alcohol and whatever drug maybe they had at the time. It's not until he's actually eating pig slop that he realizes, hey, this isn't going very well for me. I should probably go back to dad. Dad, the whole time, standing at the kitchen window, waiting on younger son to come home, sees younger son coming down the path. Do you remember the story? Yes? See his younger son coming down the path. What does he do? Right? Old man hits the front door, hikes up his dress, right? And he's, you know, which was like a total insult for that time. His bare white legs running down the road to get his younger son. Takes off his signet ring, revealing the head of the estate. Takes off his signature robe, revealing he was, in fact, the head of that estate. Gives him the ring, gives him the robe. Says, hey, kill the fattened calf. Younger son receiving all sorts of grace and mercy. The older son says what? You never killed a calf for me. Where's my, that's my ring. That's not his ring. That's my robe. That's not his robe. That's my inheritance that you're giving to this guy. Where's my calf at? And, and in that moment, I mean, we see this older brother, man, acting like a slave. But I've worked hard, but I've done what you've said, but I've always measured up. I, I've fed the pigs. I've, I raised that calf. You're killing this calf for this punk? The, the reality is, as we said in this room, it's ludicrous for us to not think that sometimes we have a slave mentality as Christians. See, religion sneaks in so quickly. It's so sneaky. And so as we said in this room together, what I, what I want you to hear is this. Some of you need to stop, for, not just stop, some of you need to watch repenting only for the things you do that are bad and start actually looking in your heart and thinking about maybe you need to repent for the things you've done that are righteous with a poor heart. The older son did everything right. The younger son did nothing right. That's the very definition of religion. That's what causes us, especially in Reformed, conservative churches, to look down in our nose at people in our culture that we think are lesser, even though they're the very ones we're called to go save. Religion is dangerous. Jesus is not just a savior to save you, but a sibling who sacrifices everything to invite you into his family. That's always been the plan. In the story, the older brother says, that's my ring, that's my robe. Hey, where's my, where, where's my calf at? Jesus is our older brother, the brother who brothers us so the father can father us. Jesus, the older brother, looks at us and says, dude, you can have it all. Whatever it takes to redeem you and bring you into the family, come into the family. No, listen, no other religion even has this. Like there is no religion, there's no school of thought, there's no worldview that can even, like even has a framework or a paradigm for this sort of love. You can look at every other Easter, every Eastern religion, every spirituality. You can go look and research all of them. And what they will say at the end of the day is that that thought that you can receive the same inheritance as a God is blasphemous. You must think you're gods. To which we can stand toe to toe with them, man, nose to nose. And we can say, no, 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 we are not gods. But you better believe we're sons. And our older brother has earned our place at this estate. He has bought us every single thing that we 
never need. Adoption is intimate. It's not isolating. It rightfully gives us a good, beautiful picture of the Father. Adoption invites us to rest, to true, real Sabbath rest, not religion. Adoption reveals our sonship, calls us out of the shadows, calls us away from the facade, and allows us to come before the Father and others with a gospel mindset that says, man, God has accepted me right where I am. I don't even care what y'all think about me anymore. We're just gonna walk out, I'm just going to walk out my salvation with fear and trembling as a son. Right? A spirit of sonship always been the plan. Last thing I have for you, then, adoption is costly. It is costly. Verse 6, Ephesians 1, verse 6. This is so good for my soul. To praise, to the praise, verse 6, finishing the sentence, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us, there it is again, in the Beloved, your adoption into the family of God, as you've heard so far, as you will continue to hear, is very, very costly. Nobody gets a free lunch. Our relationship with the Father costs him everything, specifically the Beloved. In order for the God, the Father, to put the name and the title and the robe and the ring of the Beloved on us, he had to sacrifice the Beloved in our place. That is glorious grace. Uh, as I think about that, I, I think about as a, an adoptive parent now, okay? My view of the doctrine has a, of adoption has shifted because I'm actually an adoptive parent. Does that make sense? So I think about it just a little bit more practically. I imagine that the only other aspect of adopting a kid into your family is the moment that a mom or a dad has to surrender the rights of that kid to a different family. That has to be the most weighty thing a parent can engage. The, the moment that a parent says, I'm going to willingly surrender them over. Like, that's the first part. That's what God did for us. He willingly surrendered his son to redeem us. That's pretty costly. Church. That's costly. Uh, adoption is difficult then for all parties, whether you're the biological parent or the adoptive parent. It's financially stressful. It's emotionally stressful. It's spiritually difficult. It, it's intellectually, it's hard. It's just hard. I don't know if there are foster families in your church, adoptive families in your church. It's just, it's just hard. Two years ago, whenever my wife and I got licensed as foster parents, uh, we found ourselves standing in a NICU, if you're familiar with that, Neil Native Intensive Care Unit, NICU, uh, looking at an eight-day-old little boy who was addicted to heroin. That's where his defiance used to come from. Everybody has a story. So it was the holidays, uh, there was no maternity leave, and there's most certainly no paternity leave. Uh, there were more hospital visits than I ha- ever went to with my two biological kiddos. In uh, the world, man, it just did not slow down for us. Like the world just did not care that it was the holidays, and then we just took a foster kid who was pretty, um, that need, ha- you know, needed a lot of special attention into our family. It was a miserable four months. Uh, anybody in here know Jim Gaffigan? Am I familiar with Jim Gaffigan? Okay, some head nods, yeah. And uh, people would say, what is it like to foster during the holidays? And we would say, it feels like you're drowning and someone hands you a baby. That's what it felt like. It felt like just everything cultural was hitting us, trying to juggle work, trying to juggle her work. She's in grad school to be a nurse practitioner in the NICU. So what better mom to get, right, than that mom and a NICU patient and all these things. And it just felt, dude, it was so hard. Two years later, this last December 2020, we adopted Kaysen into our family, which is why a little bit different, more practical view of adoption or the doctrine of adoption. Do you know there's only one thing you cannot give an adopted child? 
you can try to give a child all things, and you should. Right? There's only one thing that you can get, one thing you cannot give a child. What do you think that is? Your DNA. You can never give an adopted child your chromosomes. You can't give them your DNA. You can try to give that kid all things, and you should, but at the end of the day, as a parent, like you're limited. That kid can act like you. He can talk like you. He can be, begin to smile like you. Environmental conditions can kind of can affect that. You can provide most things, but you can't provide all things. He'll never have my DNA. But there is something you can give this kid regardless, and that's your name. Like there was a moment whenever we began to foster, and this just helps me wrap my mind around all of this. Whenever you foster, you know that adoption is a possibility, although that's not the reason you sign up to foster. You sign up for reunification, but when you decide to foster, you decide to move towards a child. There's a plan. Hey, we're going to move towards this kid. We want to take this kid in. We want to get this kid off the street. We want to see this kid get cleaned up. Fostering, listen, fostering would be sufficient. Fostering is incredible. It's an incredible, incredibly gracious act to bring someone who's not yours, they've done nothing, and you bring them into your home that's no different than us, right? If you read the rest of Ephesians, it says we are orphaned without a home, no home, no nation, no hope, and God being rich in mercy does what? Brings us into his family. So fostering is the most beautiful picture of that. It would be sufficient to foster. Lots of sacrifice there, not downplaying that in any way at all. But there is a moment with adoption. There's a moment where we had to have a conversation and say, is it enough for our family specifically to foster? And we both came to the conclusion, it is not. And so as we look at this little boy and we think about adoption, there's this reality then where you take a, an extra step to invite this kid further into your family and actually place your name upon them. Like this is, adoption is our climax of our salvation, church. It was not enough for God the Father to look at us and say, hey, I'll bring you in off the street, I'll give you salvation, I'll make you righteous, I'll cancel all your payments of debt. It, it wasn't enough for our Father to do that. It would have been enough. Are you tracking? It would have been enough for Jesus to come and live the perfect life and die in, in our place as our substitute and resurrect a new life and send us the Holy Spirit. That would have been sufficient. That would have been more grace than we ever could imagine being bestowed upon us. But we have a good father who looked at us and said, it's not enough to just save you, but rather I want to put my name on you. Like he looks at us through the lens of the beloved and said, it's not enough. Like I'm going to put the name of the beloved upon my children. Get over here, son, and stand between us so that whenever I look through you, I can see them as holy and blameless. That was always the plan. That's an unimaginable grace. He says it's glorious grace that we've been given through the beloved. It's costly. Like the moment that the father looked at us, he knew, right? He knew at some point in time that he was going to willfully surrender his son, not just to save us, but to graft us into his family for eternity. He was going to put his name on us. And not only that, as if that were not enough, he could have stopped there. But then there's this whole other doctrine that I don't get to get into with you, but it's called glorification. And what that means is this, whenever Jesus returns, perfect son that he is, listen to me, he's literally, like by the power of his Holy Spirit, he's not gonna just have us in the family, he's literally gonna give us his DNA. It's the one thing we could never do. 
He's going to present us to himself in full glory. What does that mean? This is so crazy. What this means? So cra- no, one else, no one else. Okay. Come on, Paul. Help me out, bro. This is so crazy to me because what that means is that Jesus is going to see us the way he's always seen us. So like while we are kind of ridden with sin and fallen and broken, yet simultaneously we're redeemed, the Father in that moment through the Son, he will move the Son out of the way and we will literally be presented to him the way he's seen us for eternity. His name upon us, church. That's crazy. That is so crazy. I'm still the only one. All right, whatever. I don't even care, dude. Thank you, Jesus, for my salvation. That is what this means, to be blessed in the beloved. That is what that means. Means that you love the book of Ephesians. Oh, I wish I could just keep preaching the book of Ephesians. I'd preach the whole thing. Oh my gosh, that's what we get to celebrate as Christians. It was incredible blessing and adoption. It was always the plan. Most certainly is costly. And listen, and it's going to continue to cost us as we try to walk out missional community in the same ways that Jesus walked this earth, as we invite people in through conversation, as we serve people and try to meet their needs, as we boldly and proudly share wild proclamations like this to a world, listen, that needs to be adopted. If there's a world out there that we keep looking down our noses at because we worship our theology instead of the Savior, and they need to be brought into the family. And that's what the Lord has called us to do, whether it be Sacred City Church or Heights Community Church, as we walk out being a community on mission to restore the city, this is what we get to walk out. And when people look at us, man, they see it, and they think, that's attractive. I might not fully understand all that, but there's something about you where they see the sun in us. And it becomes attractive to them. And then you begin walking in the family with this. As we move to the table here for communion, and this meal is a meal from the sun for the sun. This meal, like you might be sitting here, as I mentioned in the beginning, and feeling the, that level of abandonment, feeling lost, feeling hopeless, feeling outside of the family of God as a professing Christian, let me remind you that communion is a means of grace by which the Son comes. He says, you might not physically feel me, but today you're going to. And so as you take this cup that is so frustrating to get into, and the crinkle of the wrapper happens, we do the same thing, I know. Listen, as you get to the bread finally, as you get to the cup, man, just let that physically, as it enters into you, as it begins to restore you by the power of the Spirit, but as it begins to restore and reform in you, take that then, this Jesus, out into the culture with you and be a part of the restoration and reformation that needs to happen out there. This is a meal from the Son for the Son. The bread represents Christ's body, broken for us in our place as our substitute. The cup represents his blood, spilt for us, spilt for you in our place as our substitute. It is a meal for baptized believers. And so if you've not yet professed faith in this Jesus and took the next step, even of baptism, let me invite you to do so today. I don't want to leave here without giving you the option. Respond to the gospel today. If the men who are serving could come forward.